This episode of Troxel is supported by Avail. Content is more than Revit families. If it's digital, Avail can handle it. Learn more at getavail.com. Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. In this episode, I welcome Ian Janicki back to the podcast. Ian is the co-founder of Homestead, a company focused on developing infill housing in California, leveraging new statewide legislation. In this episode, we discuss what architecture schools have been and, for the most part, still are focused on versus what opportunities exist because of recent changes in legislation, the importance of infill, especially for solving the housing crisis, why architects should consider learning real estate, how to make more developers, and why, entrepreneurship in the profession, making the case for why we should be wrapping our collective heads around the potential of architecture as product, and how to scale an idea to affect change, how to protect a business to avoid what Ian calls the lumpiness of the profession, and no conversation about housing would be complete without some nimbyism and yimbyism. This was another great conversation with Ian and, in my opinion, much needed as so many people are thinking about the future of the profession along with adjacent opportunities to use their skills developed while in architectural education. And I hope that you'll get value from what you're about to hear and that you'll share it with your network to help me with my goal of elevating these conversations within the profession and beyond. So without further ado, I bring you Ian Janicki. Ian, great to have you back. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm excited for this conversation. I teased it a little bit in a previous episode, I think a few episodes ago, now now by the time this one comes out, when I was talking to Doris Sung at USC School of Architecture and DOSA Architecture Studio, and, and she said that USC is developing an entrepreneurship program within the architectural kind of sphere at USC, and so... Details are still light, at least from my perspective, on what that's going to be. But from what I understand, it's going to be coming out in the fall. And then you come and say, we should be talking about entrepreneurship in architect, you know, as as architects, we should be expanding the conversation. So I'm excited to have this conversation. I think there's a lot of stars aligning for, for this uh, conversation to happen. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. So catch us up. Last time you were on the show, you were at Build Outfit. Right. And that is no longer. And you're now CTO at Homestead. We've had Sam Schneider from Homestead on this podcast before, and you're doing a lot of interesting things there. I know Homestead has changed even since you've been there. Right. So catch us up on kind of what your journey has been just to kind of set the table for this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So just to keep it brief. So Outfit was a small startup. I started, uh, you know, we raised some venture capital. We went through Y Combinator. And, you know, after, you know, some initial, like, kind of positive signs, um, I didn't really see the upward and the right trajectory that would really help us kind of use venture capital scale to actually uh, get to where we need to be. And, you know, I think I learned a lot. Uh, I think it's just kind of one of those things where, as an entrepreneur, you kind of need to get into the arena and it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to kind of fumble a time or two because it is something that is just it's another skill set you have to learn. And so I think the t- big takeaways, and I've ultimately decided to, to fold outfit and, and take on uh, some new opportunities. But I think the biggest things I took away from that was, you know, outfit as a concept was do it yourself, but in a box. And I really had always been very interested in scaling architecture. And, you know, Outfit was just kind of, it was a clever idea, right? Where I wanted to basically create an Ikea kit almost for any DIY project at home. And I would leverage Home Depot's API to basically deliver materials to a homeowner's front door. And again, very clever uh, business idea. But I think one of the things that I took away from it and its, and its lack of potential was um, I really over-indexed as someone being handy myself and being able to build things myself is is how handy the average, you know, 
customer might be. And there were a lot of projects where they were just having a lot of trouble actually accomplishing the project. And so, and then ultimately too, there was just a low willingness to pay. And I think that's just something where, you know, you see this in architecture. It's like, why do most architects only work with the top 10% of the population? It's because there's a low willingness to pay for architecture at the lower, at the lowest 90, on the lower 90% of the, uh, the, the income spectrum. And while that can be frustrating, I mean, ultimately, I learned that lesson the hard way because DIYers typically aren't doing DIY because they are, you know, necessarily really into the idea of doing DIY. They're doing DIY to save costs. And uh, I think that was a hard lesson for me to learn as an entrepreneur, but a, a uh, you know, a welcome one on my journey here. So to catch you up to where I'm at today, that's correct. Um, I'm a CTO and co-founder at Homestead. And Homestead is mission is to, you know, build as many infill housing units as possible in California. Over the past couple of years, California has had a um, this this amazing set of laws that have been passed to fix the housing crisis here. And they're kind of starting from the bottoms up where they're deregulating, you know, R1 single family zoning across California. They first started with ADUs. And recently this year, they passed a new monumental law called SB9, which allows you to subdivide and develop a duplex. Those are both parts of the law through this through this legislation. And Homestead is looking to help homeowners basically do them themselves. And we are, yeah, so we're kind of just getting started there. And, you know, previously our business was helping homeowners with ADUs. And now we see the opportunity with duplexes to even further accelerate that mission of creating, uh, you know, ideally more units on a single family property throughout California, because, you know, California's problem isn't that we don't have enough land, it's that we don't have enough density. And so that is what we're trying to solve here. Yeah, I think it's important to key into that. It's not only splitting a lot on, sing- and I assume it's mostly single family residences in which we're talking about as far as land use goes, right? And then, so once you split it, then you can st- you can build a duplex on that empty piece that you're, that you've split off. The amazing thing is you can really go from a single unit property. So, so let's say I have a single family house. Mm-hmm. I can then split that property. So now I have two lots. I can then build a duplex on the first property and then I can do build a duplex on the second property. I can also, and again, all this depends on your lot and you know what's the Florida area ratio in your community and how much space you have, what are the setbacks, those are still locally controlled. But you could then add an ADU per lot and a junior ADU per lot, right? So technically, if you really wanted to go for broke and you had the correct lot, you could go from a one-unit lot to an eight-unit lot, right? So, I mean, the again, it, it really depends on the uh, the individual lot itself, but it really does open the door for a whole new world of infill development here. And and Homestead, when when Sam was on the show, was still operating under this idea of you help the owner split the lot, you design and build the new construction on the the other half, and then they get 80%, you get 20% of the sale of that additional property. But you've got, you've moved on even since then. I, I assume that that was a difficult uh, path <laughs> based on some things that you've said over the years. I think that what we learned is the consumer product wasn't necessarily, and the consumer education regarding this law wasn't really necessarily ready for prime time. I think, you know, we, I think we're a bit early. I think I'd love to return to that model eventually. Right now we're kind of doing more kind of um, doing these projects by ourselves and then we'll be, you know, selling them to individual homeowners and ideally allowing for individual homeowners to have a starter home at a much lower cost. And so we're doing some pilot projects right now and that's really exciting. And, you know, hopefully we'll be able to expand to a more consumer version in the future, but that's uh, that's TBD. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm excited to watch what happens with Homestead and we don't need to go f- too much farther down that road. I'm sure pieces of it might fit into the the conversation we're about to have, but really this idea about the importance of infill is kind of the first major point that you wanted to talk about. And so let's just start there and just talk about, I mean, I think we've already kind of hit some of the, why it's important. Why? Okay. So this is California's addressing this. It's going to, I assume other states will follow suit as well, but you specifically stated, even with what you're working on Homestead, you're trying to do this in California. Obviously the laws are here now. 
So it's a good place to kind of prove it, right? But take us through where we're headed with this. Where do, what do you see actually happening? Because I think there is kind of that hurdle to get over of educating the public and who has the potential to do these things. It seems like, I know that this is kind of where your business model is, but this is kind of where some of the questions that come to my mind as you think about what you're doing and, and why infill is important. How do, you, how do you educate the public and the NIMBYs and all, all, all of these things that are out there so that this actually starts to happen and does get some momentum? Yeah, it's an excellent question. And maybe in architecture school, yeah, even, I mean, right? Like, <laughs> I, I, I think to zoom out a little bit, I mean, for the past, you know, the first zoning ordinances were really put into effect about 100 years ago. If you want a really amazing history on, on the history of zoning, you should definitely check out my friend's book, Nolan Gray's Arbitrary Lines. It really takes this amazing journey of teaching kind of like how, how are we where we are today? And where we are, and I think where all of our, the legacy of just all of our land use rules have really just been very inundated into the practice, into, you know, development, into even the the hearts and minds of the American people. And we've just kind of been stuck in this modality that, you know, the single family unit is in a single family house and you know we commute by highway into a central business district and we've been living with that metaphor for a very very long time and you know as housing prices have really gone out of control and and you know my generation hasn't been able to necessarily afford their starter home like their parents did there's just been a lot more questioning about how we treat land in the United States. And it's just something that at least I wasn't talking about or I wasn't hearing about when I was in architecture school about a decade ago. And, and again, I think we all have to be you know, aware of our filter bubbles because I'm definitely in a housing filter bubble. But I think that there's a certain salience and uh, right now in terms of the, the questions that the, the broader public is having regarding housing and land use and how we're treating the American dream. And, you know, I think that a couple of years ago, it would be very strange to see a New York Times op-ed about zoning and, and NIMBYs, but that's happening now. I mean, the term YIMBY and the YIMBY movement wasn't even around just a half decade ago. And now they're a major political force. I mean, it's really taken quite a dramatic change and it's very exciting but yeah to get back to your question i mean we haven't been able to question it because it's just been the law of the land for so long and what's so shocking i suppose is because there's been such there's been such uh you know adherence to these laws and 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 the consistency across the nation of these zoning protocols and they are pretty consistent in terms of single family uh zoning um, there hasn't been any conversation or bandwidth to have a broader conversation about how do we want to build? How do we want to create community? Why is everything unwalkable, right? And I think we're just starting to kind of, as a larger community, a little bit wake up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And just the interconnectedness of everybody as far as communication goes is really helping in this realm, right? Get the word out, have these kind of conversations out loud where they might have happened in the city council meeting before or with a connected group of people in a in a location. Now it's spilling outside of that. And the awareness is definitely coming up a lot more and more. Like this is something that comes across my Twitter feed all the time. It's this whole NIMBY, YIMBY, like we see it. We see people talking about it when it comes to transportation, when it comes to housing, when it comes to like, what are our communities actually doing to revitalize these areas? Um, I'm just seeing that that this boiling up to the surface a lot more often. And so because of that, I'm wondering in the architectural education sphere where I'm not active in it. I don't know if you are. What is going on or what should be going on in that? Because I, what you, you posted on a Slack on the Architecty Slack channel the other day, right? You said, you know, a lot of people there are going from architecture into tech, which you and I have both both done on some level. 
But you're curious how many people are interested going jumping from architecture to real estate development. And I think this, like, I wonder how many hands go up. I mean, I guess I could look at your post and see how many people have kind of like high-fived you on that or, or are interested because um, I don't know that this is being talked about during an architectural education. Like architectural education, for the most part, and I'll generalize, I think is still about training people for how architecture has has always operated, not for what it could be in the future. And so does real estate development come up through that as a viable option for architects? Because I know the AIA has done architecture no favors in the last decades because it's really tried to steer architects away from the dirty developer kind of role uh, pretty actively, right? And so there's pressure on existing professionals from AIA and in that way to like the value of an architect and, and separation from development, right? Um, versus kind of the things that you're talking about, which is like proactive, being a part of the conversation when it comes to real estate, understanding how this works, how do we foster more density? Like that's a much more entrepreneurial, proactive take. And so that probably does need to start in the educational process so that that awareness is much more broadly applied to the profession, to the younger generation, so that it can filter through the practices of tomorrow or today. Yeah. Um, I can't speak to where the zeitgeist is when it comes to education at the moment. I think a lot of the things that we've been discussing just now kind of, I think, would traditionally be put into the bucket of the planning department at universities. And, you know, having discussions about how and how we should be using land and how effective it should be. And, you know, as architects, and this is just speaking from my own experience, when I was in school, it was about the site and the site was very isolated. And you may take some very adjacent context about, you know, okay, how, how is the site going to integrate with its neighboring sites? But there was never a question of, why this site and why isn't it walkable to a transit location? And why isn't the site, why is the site even in this town? Why are we building here? There's never that level of questioning because perhaps there's a certain amount of, well, the developer decides those decisions for us, which I think we should take into, co- into question why they should be making those decisions for us. As architects, we're trying to they right, are. Exactly. Right. Like as architects, I think we can, you know, certainly do an analysis about like what makes a great space and so much about what makes a great space is how adjacent these structures are to other important community features. So I think that there is a, you know, when we, when we work in a project in, tar- in, in architecture school, it's very isolated and it's, it, we don't ask these bigger questions and I don't blame any student for not asking this, but I think there's a certain question about where does the pedagogy want to, what want to address. And yeah, I mean, a lot of the, you know, activity um, when it comes to, you know, deregulation of single family zoning and a lot of, and, and, you know, this deregulation is now happening even for other parts of zoning, right? Such as, uh, you know, California just passed a law that if you can, that you can now develop residential on commercial lots, as long as you use prevailing wage labor. So that's like a really exciting development. So again, but, you know, those conversations are happening in you know, planning circles. A lot of the people I meet at these meetups are, you know, from the planning profession, but not too many architects. And, you know, what I find so curious about that is like, there's so much now, as you start to deregulate, there's so much building opportunity in terms of just like the amount of sites that open up and the amount of architectural opportunities that open up. I don't necessarily know how to get that community engaged, but I think it would really behoove us to start paying attention and start understanding these laws and start understanding how we can finance these projects and make these communities that these laws are intending to make. Because ultimately, these laws are just laws. Someone has to actually go out and raise raise money and, and, and get all the parties together. And obviously, that is seen as a traditional developer's role. But I think we need all hands on deck here. It's interesting because education is all about the site, like you said, which really to me means it's all about design and it's it's not answering the questions of how did we get to that point, right? Because architecture school is very much setting people up to wait for a phone call or an email to come in inbound, right, from my website or 
because you knew another person that did a project with me through word of mouth, or you drove by and saw something under construction and you saw my sign up. Like that's kind of traditional architecture. And that's what most part, you know, either either you're going to go hang your own shingle and, and try to break into competing with the other architects in your location, or you're going to work for a firm who hands you work to do, right? It's, it's some business developments person in the firm to bring in the work and keep people employed and keep that machine fed and pumping out projects. This is a very different thing, right? Like when understanding the money, understanding real estate, right? Like these are some points that I think are the, the types of things that have to be like, these are the things that should be happening as well in architecture school, just to say like, there are other business models possible. And like you said, the law is just a framework. It's just an enabler for potential. It's not the thing itself, right? You, we as architects among developers and, and other people can then take that framework and apply tools and work sets and ideas and, and, and relationships and communities to those to create those things. But that's, that's where the rubber meets the road. And that's a very different mindset than waiting for work to come to me. Absolutely. And I think one of the more exciting examples of this is, so when Homestead pivoted from the ADU business into the SB9 business, we had a pretty um, robust infrastructure when it came to the ADU go-to-market and production line, basically. And instead of kind of throwing our hands up and saying, well, we're just going to throw that all away, we said, no, let's Let's spin that out into its own business. And so now Nextdoor, which is a wholly independent entity, is a ADU company that's now called Auto, O-T-T-O, ADU. And what they do is a lot of the work that we did before, but instead of, you know, there's no fancy technology there. There's no, you know, there's, there's, there's nothing kind of high growth startup about it, but it's this really robust small business you know, founded and led by architects. And what's different about their approach versus a traditional firm is they said, we do one thing and we do it really well. And we're systematize we systematize that, right? it and we productize mm-hmm. the architecture in a way where we are now aiming to get as many projects in this really, really specific vertical as possible in this really specific geographic region. And then their focus becomes less on, you know, the minutia of these custom projects um, and taking on these many different topologies, right? You know, bouncing in between single family homes and retail and hospitals or, you know, that traditional architecture firm might do and saying, no, we do ADU ground up and garage conversions. We have three to four different finish packages. And we're going to create, and this is the important part, the product is not just the architecture and the service. The product is also the go-to-market. How do we build an online you know, brand? How do we build a CRM, a customer relationship management tool, right? That you know allows people, tra- tracks people like, when did they come to our site? And when are they coming to some of our open houses? And how do we capture them in the lead funnel? And then how do we convert them from a lead into a customer and what are the different steps there and what are the different payments right for you know actually working with us and making that the product itself the service itself becomes this really you know thoughtful product for the customer because now the customer can then log into their portal and can see the process and can see the progress being made on their site because the architecture firm decided we're going to go really vertical and really specific on this modality. And now they can take advantage of all the efficiencies that come with that. Now, I'm sure there's a lot of architects out there who might balk at that and they do enjoy the bespoke nature of every individual project. But this is a real opportunity for some ambitious folks to say, hey, there is a lot of X topology in Y community. Let me make something scalable there because it's totally possible with tools you can buy off the shelf and you don't need any sort of extra education. It's just a matter of, you know, understanding that go to market strategy, 
um, and putting together a product that, you know, consumers would really, you know, benefit from it and, 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 and would want to purchase. And can see themselves in. I, I mean, it, something that's always been top of mind for me is that w- architects deal with the 1% for the most part, right? Like you, you said 10% earlier. I, I would be surprised. If that's <laughs> I was being charitable. <laughs> super charitable so this idea of and and by the one percent like those are the people who will pay for architecture right and therefore the percent of the built environment that we actually affect is about one percent worldwide as well from statistics that i've seen it might be hovering around between one and two percent which is crazy to me to think that there's so much on the table there and for you to say you know an extopology in Y community, there's a lot of those. And for architects to kind of think about the idea of specificity of project type in community type as a place to really hone a business and a product around. I mean, I think one of the reasons why architects like the bespoke nature of design is because like it's, it's, I mean, everybody likes designing stuff right and and solving new problems and solving interesting problems and if you're solving the same problem over and over i can kind of see the argument against that from the architectural point of view but when you think about it at scale like that you can apply design which has value to a bigger set of end users to me that's that's where i think that the trade-off is like you might not be solving this one little detail in this one way on this one project with this stair, but you might be applying that in a much broader sense to bring more value to people who want an ADU as an example, right? So a higher level of craft, a better design, which equals better outcomes for those people in their communities is a pretty fantastic place to be as an architect to add value to that system. And so by creating kind of these systems on the back end that enable that to happen, at scale is is a different business model, one that we aren't necessarily trained for in school, but totally applicable to the work that we do in the built environment. And I, I would totally advocate for architects to be at the table for that. I mean, that, that to me sounds like a fantastic place to be. Yeah. And I think you made a really excellent point there, Evan, which was, I think there is a lot of consternation. I certainly hear it from my friends within the architecture world, folks who not just work for the 1%, but literally work for the top 50 richest people in the world. I have friends who like work on their, you know, second houses and things like that. And there's a, there's despondence in that. And when you build a model, like we were just discussing, you're essentially commoditizing architecture, which I know it might be a dirty word to some, but that means you're able to reach a much broader set of individuals and income strata. And I think if you do care about making architecture accessible, you do have to commoditize and programize. You, you can't do the bespoke nature at that scale. So if that be, making architecture more accessible, if that's of interest to you, I think that's the way to go. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a great way to say it. Making architecture more accessible is it's the same idea, but presented in a different way. And to me that, opens design to more people which then says design is more valuable to more people and it does raise the entire profession slash industry to a higher level together uh, and 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 what's interesting to me about this and in, in saying that there's so many opportunities out there is they're all in important pieces of the puzzle and i guess i see this on the on the tech side is a lot of companies focus on this doing this one thing really well and playing well with others, right? And if in that way, there's a community being built of kind of like-purposed people who aren't trying to do it all, right? They're trying to do that one thing really well. I I, I love that idea because it's, it does start to say like, okay, well, I, I need this kind of project. Well, you should talk to that person. Like you're, you should talk to that group over there. I'm not the right fit for that. Whereas I, so many firms try to do everything for everybody and be, be all right. And that, that then waters down the work It lower. It, it has its, its own set of, I don't know, downsides, I guess. Um, when, when a company is approached and they never say no, right. They'll do it all. Uh, so it, that focus helps in other ways too, where you can really dig into your problem statement and innovate within it to create 
a better business process, better outcomes for the users, whatever it is. Like there's a lot of ways that that can be applied that normally just kind of get swept over because there's no time for that stuff in, in a general architectural practice. That's correct. And there's no reward. There's for no it. reward. There's not a reward. Yeah, for that. There's, yeah. there's, there's no alpha there. And you know, you really do need to pick your niche. And I think that's what maybe people might get afraid of like, well, oh, I don't want to do this particular topology for the rest of my life. And, you know, I would, I would ask like, maybe like, what are the things, what, what are the topologies that bring you the most joy and, and scale, scale that. Right. Um, but yeah, I think that the whole, by narrowing, you're able to go much farther because then you're able to really analyze, okay, where are all the customers for X topology? Let's just call it an ADU, right? Just, just, you know, where do they live online? Where do they live out in the wild? How can I meet them? How can I make that? How can I bring awareness to them about my firm and about my services? When you increasingly narrow your customer base, you actually build a far more resilient customer base because you're actually having opinions about who they are where they work um, and how to build a relationship with them that starts far before any sort of purchase, right? It starts about perhaps education, maybe writing blog posts about, you know, how to finance an ADU or, you know, what sort of fire zones um, are ADUs not allowed in. And, you know, that gives them a, you know, a touch point on your brand. And that's like the first interaction with your brand that they may have. And then the next time they may, sign up for a newsletter or, you know, it's, it's about this kind of long kind of burn of this kind of customer trust that's getting built between, you know, you and the customer. And then eventually, you know, some percent of those folks actually convert and that's great. And I think so much of that can be automated. So much of that can be just about being consistent about creating content and putting yourself out there. But, you know, let's be honest. A lot of those skill sets I just mentioned is something that is just not even on the radar of many practitioners. Because deadlines, because next project, right? I mean, there's a lot of reasons Absolutely. why. I'm not blaming them at all. Yeah. It's just, it's just, it's yeah. just new. Let's take a quick break to share more about our sponsors. My friends, I've got a new chapter in the Avail story to tell you about, and that is the newly released version of Avail Desktop 4.3. The people behind Avail continually strive to make things easier for you. Easier to find the information you're looking for, easier to get it into your preferred application, and easier to store it in your preferred cloud storage locations. Let's face it, I think we can all agree that easier is better. But they didn't stop there. They also care about what your experience is like. So, as always, they've kept their focus on visuals with an eye toward design and ease of use. You're probably dying to hear the details of what's new. Well, who am I to get in the way? So let's get right to it. Avail Desktop 4.3 will now feel like your own custom app thanks to key cards. Key cards are data-driven and create zippy new visual ways of organizing your existing content. Think of them like pivot tables for your content. Join the Avail Desktop 4.3 party in BYOS or bring your own storage. Now you can store and deliver your content using Autodesk's BIM 360, Microsoft's OneDrive, Microsoft SharePoint, Google Drive, Dropbox, Ignite, and others. Avail's new Dynamic Paths feature also solves the problem of accessing content using desktop connectors like Autodesk Desktop Connector. Try it today. Either bug your admin to update your installation for all the new goodies, or if you aren't currently using Avail, go to getavail.com today to learn more. That's getavail.com. And now let's get back to our conversation. So, okay, so let's start to maybe think through how someone could actually accomplish this, some of these things, right? Because it isn't easy to completely shift gears. And so I, I'm interested to know if you, have, if you have any examples of people who have kind of successfully done this. I know you guys have done this, but you kind of jumped in whole, you know, both feet and just said, we're going to figure this out along the way. You didn't have to keep another thing going to necessarily figure this one out. Do you, do you have any examples of people who have kind of been able to make those shifts over time sounds like the adu group that you're 
you guys are associated with loosely is is kind of figured that out in some way. Yeah, but that's I don't think that's a very genuine example because um, we use kind of venture capital dollars to kick that off. They weren't necessarily starting from scratch, so I just kind of wanted to be honest about the, the situation there. Um, but I, I think a lot of it is so kind of what I just mentioned is like what can you do on the side in terms of either getting a first project done. I think one of the things that allowed Auto to uh, previously homestead to scale was getting that first project done. And so getting that first project, I think is huge because that's just, it's just evidence. People will not respond to renders. They won't respond to, you know, um, nothing there. They do want to see evidence. And so I think just getting the first kind of model unit is the, the, the biggest thing you can do. And then the other thing is, as I just mentioned, I think there's, there's such a, there's such a gap in education between the consumer and the architect when it comes to when it comes to just everything that goes into a project and making really accessible content to help educate that consumer is another really strong way to go. I wish I had a playbook for you and, and I hope that someone builds one um, because Writing I think it's it. yeah. desperately needed. <laughs> but I think a right. combination of just getting that first project done whether that's a moonlit project and combining that with, um, you know, some sort of brand building and, and, and content generation. Um, and again, these are skills that I still struggle with building myself. And so it's, it's an, it's a crazy new world here in terms of building those sort of businesses. But I think we should just be starting to have that conversation. Yeah, it's, it is kind of, uh, trying to think of the, the way to say this, but, but it's the, the idea of having skin in the game is is more than just funding the project to happen potentially if you're if we're talking about kind of the architect as developer kind of model here or you know this adu business or um even sb9 with with splitting lots and kind of going through that process and and funding it ahead of time that that then the the sale kind of makes whole at the end and some of that money goes split between the two parties there's a lot of interesting ways though to put skin in the game and i think what you're talking is at many different levels right it's it's also in educating a, a potential future client it's in building trust and authority over time online which is a great way to get the word out and have people make make something that's shareable make something that's worth sharing for people in different groups that you may or may not be a part of um if you make something really valuable that gets put out there that somebody else deems worth sharing, it's way better for them to be talking about you than for you to be talking about you, right? It's like coming up with ways to do that and, and, and approaching that as a design problem. I think the business as a design problem is something that we can and should be doing a, a lot more than we are now, right? We're, we approach the building as the design problem, but the business is a design problem as well. And to your point, there are so many opportunities out there to solve different design problems and not be stepping on each other's toes even um, to, to, to accomplish that. And, and then sharing what, what works and what doesn't and rising all boats, right? I think that there's a huge opportunity there as well. I, I can't help but feel like, man, the answer is always do more. <laughs> it is it's a, that's i keep coming across that it's like how do you do more you do more you get involved in this you learn about that you you become an expert to to a certain level in all of these things so that you can get outside of the old way of doing it and and chart new paths new, new territory so I, I don't know if there is there is no playbook like we're saying uh that exists that we know of i i did see one uh, lucas gray from charette venture group uh replied to your post on Architecti with a book, uh, which I bought a copy of, Architect and Developer, right here. Yeah, yeah. So I just started reading it this morning. And um, so maybe there is a playbook. And it, and it kind of has a bunch of different case studies for how different approaches in this architect as developer idea. But, but I think we do need more developers. This isn't a dirty word, right? Uh, this is, I, I remember hearing a long time ago from architect and developer Jonathan Siegel in one of his posts, which was like, the clients are not the answers to your problems, architects, right? He charted a path for his firm to become a development office, and they've done mid-rise 
they, they started residential, went into mid-rise, are doing amazing projects and, and like selling off units, multi-unit developments that they're selling off and maybe keeping one or two to themselves and using that as income for the next one. And it's been incredibly successful for them. But they, you have to be willing to assume risk that is beyond kind of the typical architectural amount of risk on a project, which is also a very small amount of the overall project as far as fees go and, and what, what you can get out of it. Yeah, I mean, everything that we've spoken about in terms of different models up until this point really is about optimizing the firm, but it's still a client model, right? You're still, the capital is coming from the client itself to improve an existing property. Um, you know, development's a whole different world. And, you know, but for folks who really resonate with the idea that uh, I don't really want to work with clients, clients are hard, clients are indecisive, clients are you know, this, this, and that, I totally understand that. And, you know, there's an option for you and that is development. And you're right. It does have a dirty word because I think, you know, we see development as, oh, this is just these crappy five over, you know, five over two, um, you know, developments I see everywhere. And, you know, they're, they're, uh, everything I see that's new is just gross. And it's just like, well, that's because, you know, an architect wasn't the lead partner in that that firm you know you can make much even like and i I get there's a bottom line but you can even make better architectural decisions when you have someone with the design eye um in in that room right but there's not many architects in that room yeah i think uh one of the things that that i come back to is this quote from a guy who was i believe at the time he was on the board at ncarb you know and it was like the question came up, like if people could go around architects, other professionals, you know, they're not, they don't want to hire an architect, uh, would they? And it's like, the answer is yes, because a lot of times people see architects as kind of slow part of the process. Um, they're not seeing the value there. It's a good thing. Like the point was brought up. It's a good thing. They need our stamp on these projects because, and it was like, seriously, if the only thing between using architects and not is a stamp like that can't be long for the world. Like there will be ways that will enable people to go around that. But again, I think that's because they're not seeing the value there. And what you were just talking about where when an architect is at the table, there is a higher chance for the quality, the aesthetics, the spatial function, like all of those things to be addressed at a much higher level than, than when not. And so are we waiting again to be invited to those tables or are we going to assume some of that risk and get involved? And one of the, one of the case studies that uh, James Petty talks about in the first chapter of this book is Greg Pasquarelli at Shop Architects. And when they did the Porterhouse project in New York City, like they put skin in the game, like they helped fund to make that happen. And when they completed the project, like obviously that's a higher level of risk. And then those apartments are started selling, like they got some of that back, right? And and it showed that they're willing to take the risk, but also get the reward from putting that skin in the game and being like not not just waiting to be invited to the table, but inviting themselves to that table because they're a part, they're a, a valuable member of actually making that project happen as a deliverable. I think that that's kind of the the mindset shift that has to happen when you think about this entrepreneurialism in architecture is like this is it's maybe it's not my table. Maybe it's my table. Right. But the, like, I'm, I'm at the table no matter what, like I'm, I'm a valuable piece of this. Yeah. And I think it all comes back to incentives, right? So when a developer comes to an architect and they're like, I would like to, you know, use your services, I'm paying you for a fee for service, but no matter, you know, the quality of the building that you put into it or whatever, you're not seeing any reward for that service. You're, if, if you make something that is, can sell two x, you know what the what the what the adjacent building can in terms of the market. You're not seeing that return. The developer's keeping all that, and you know, let's be honest, the developer did put up risk capital. So, and you didn't, and so that's why they're making that profit, right? There is no reward without risk, and so I think there's just just this tension where it's you know the developer is in the capital class. They are raising money. They're deploying money. They're deploying their own capital. Typically, there's always minimum investment requirements for developers. And, you know, they're going to get the benefit from that. And 
you know, architects that they, you know, want to have uh, that sort of award. Yeah, there's going to have to be some sort of involvement, but you're just going to be so much more in simpatico with the process when you do put in that risk capital and you do involve yourself from soup to nuts when it comes to a project. And um, we just don't really have that conversation about why aren't more architects doing that. Now, obviously, there's capital constraints, and we can get into that and just knowing how all this works. And trust me, I'm trying to learn all this stuff as quickly as I can as I dip, you know, descend more into more of a real estate role. Um, but yeah, I think it's, uh, it's all about incentive alignments, right? You know, like, uh, and, you know, show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome. And the outcome is, you know, architects are not necessarily motivated to, um, you know, they're like, we'll work for hours, but that's it. Right. And dudes, I'm not going to put in an extra hour because I think it's going to, you know, make this building that much better. Uh, and there's, there's just an adversarial relationship there. I, I think about kind of design build. I've done design build in the past and thinking about kind of the incentive doing design build for us was control number one, but also I didn't have to draw things to a high level of detail. <laughs> I didn't have to spend all my time on the computer because my time was actually more valuable making the thing real than it was kind of thinking about it ahead of time. But I've also just recently, I think it was just even in this book, talking about how kind of shifting that, flipping that thinking to say, no, we draw the hell out of this stuff because like the, the example was their team also did, they did all of it. They did the, the design and the build and it led to a higher quality outcome, which then sold for more money faster. Right. Even in a down economy, um, when it was like, look at your options out there, people like it, it's value is in design and we can make that happen because that's what we care about as architects to be a, and to be a part of that process that is kind of like fully integrated, you know, integrated design, integrated build contracting, like all of detailing, all those things really did lead to a better outcome and, and to have that kind of satisfaction as an architect and connection to the people who actually purchase it. And I would hope that it might even go beyond that, right. Uh, with, with a different business model um, than, than traditional architecture that, that there would even be a lot more satisfaction uh, from actually changing people's lives or for the better, you know, bettering people's lives. I, to me, there's, there's a lot of upsides to this. So are there resources out there? You said you're learning as much as you can about this. What are you What are you looking at? What What can we put in the show notes that would help? I mean, I'll definitely put this book, Architect and Developer, in there. I haven't read it myself. I can't really endorse it at this point, but I'm getting. I'll get through it. But are there other things out there that that are really helping you get to that point? Trying to get from architect to developer. Yeah, I mean, I've just been using a lot of online resources, and it's been pretty interesting. There's just not too like especially for geared towards architects there's not a terrible amount of um education there and i would love to bridge that gap i mean i think that there is a just looking at how much we need to improve our infrastructure in this country um i think that there is a rallying cry that i've heard recently it's like we need more developers like we don't need less and i think there's this enormous untapped potential inside of the architecture community because they're very talented they know the stuff back and forth and to be honest like they deserve a better pay for the quality of the work that they do and it might be learning some new skills but and learning what a performer is and learning how to raise money and, and, and some of these things that they might not feel completely natural at but the output that they could potentially have and the and the, and the amount of interesting new opportunities that they could create is i mean it's exponential if we tap it and so you know i'm looking to not just learn myself and build software tools myself to say put my first home but you know i'm also looking to build educational resources and so i also would like to put in the show notes just my calendly because i want to hear from you and i want to learn about what is blocking you like what are the things right now is it capital is it just education is it um just not knowing where to start? Is it understanding taxes? Is it understanding, you know, how to properly set up your, uh, you know, your entity? Like, do I create an LLC for my investment property? Like all these things, like, how do I get started? What's the best first project? Is it a, is it a, 
you know, just buying a house and, and, and using his rental income? Is it flipping a house? Uh, what's my entry point? Um, so I haven't seen a terrible amount of research there, but I, I'd love to build it myself or learn from your audience where I should be looking as well. Cause I definitely want to, you know, uh, also uh, promote prior art. It seems like this should be a wiki, right? Like this should be the kind of thing where as people learn and contribute to the resource pool that it's available to as many people as possible so that this can actually happen. I think <laughs> anecdote, I was on the Entree Architect Facebook group. It's the only reason I go to Facebook is just to read through kind of the state of Entree Architect, which is entrepreneur architects, a lot of very small firms, but people who are interested in being entrepreneurial in their, you know, so they're, they're doing things beyond normal practice. And the question came up, hey, what happens when you win the Powerball? If you, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and it was entry after entry, comment after comment, I would start developing. I would start developing. I would start developing. And it was like, people weren't just piling on because that's what they had seen somebody else post. Those were like, they, all of these posts came in at the same time. And I thought that was so interesting to see the appetite there. Now, obviously, these are architects who have worked with clients. And they probably also followed the ethos of, Clients are not the answers to your problems, right? It is difficult working with clients, no doubt. I've done it myself for decades and it's hard, but it just shows that like, I still love what I do. I still have passion for architecture, but I want to do it because I have this eye for what I value in the built environment. And I think it brings value to the community, right? And, and by getting watered down with kind of the, always serving the client, I'm sure that takes a toll after a while. It does take a toll after a while. And, and so what's, what's interesting is there weren't a lot of posts that said, I'm going, I'm moving to an Island and I'm, I'm going to be off the grid. It was like, I'm going to do architecture, but I'm going to develop it myself. So there is an appetite to do this, but the lack of resource, um, this one book that I'll put in the show notes, notwithstanding, maybe there's others. I know Jonathan Siegel has a course on it. I don't, it's probably pretty costly. But there aren't a lot of resources out there. And so to create this resource-rich environment, I think, is, a, is a, a challenge unto itself, but a worthy one. Yeah. I mean, obviously, there's, uh, you know, just as, as you were talking, I kind of remembered, obviously, there's the bigger pockets community. And I think that there's, you know, um, again, is it geared towards architects? No, not really. It's really just towards anyone who wants to create kind of like, uh, you know, passive income and, and cash flow. Um, and you know, that's great. And, uh, that's a great community. And I think there just needs to be even more resources, right. Um, and better tools to better understand how to even just start, you know, that journey. Um, so yeah, I think that there is, you know, I'm not as cued in on what you just mentioned in terms of the appetite within architects. I kind of threw up that post on architect the other day, just to kind of measure the appetite. And so, you know, um, again, I'd love to speak to anyone who is just even remotely interested in, in kind of pursuing this just so I can know, you know, what, what needs to get built. Because I think it's, I think it's very important that, um, you know, as someone who is a son of an architect as well, it's just like seeing the lumpiness of, um, you know, the architectural profession in terms of just, you know, a lot of projects and then no projects and a lot of projects and no projects and really complicated clients. and you know, I, I kind of grew up in that environment and, you know, my dad's a very talented dude. And, and I think he would have had a much more fulfilling career if he had more independence and he had more, he had more say in what he got to do. And so I think it's really crucial that, you know, if we're going to make sure this profession still exists and thrives in the coming decades, that we also give that optionality and the empowerment that comes with, you know, doing your own work and, and using your own capital and, 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 and growing into this new modality. Um, I have no idea what the professional will look like in a couple of decades, but I think it'll be radically different. And hopefully this is one of the directions it'll take. Yeah. You mentioned earlier, like the idea of CRMs and, and systematizing and, and tool stacks. Um, you didn't say that, but I, that's kind of what we're talking about, right? Can you Let's just go down that road for a minute because this this is one of those things. Like you said, like let's put your calendar calendly link into the show notes, right? Like that's a great example of systematizing how people can find a slot on your calendar and it's easily available to everybody out there. The audience knows about that, right? But if if somebody's a 
listening to this idea for the first time, what what's your general sense about a tool stack for creating a CRM, for creating kind of the foundation of a productized business to run on? What are the pieces that, that people should be thinking about? Well, to take one quick step back, um, I think if I learned from anything from, you know, my time going through Y Combinator is like, don't over-index on building things, over-index on talking to your customers. And so I think the first and foremost thing is like just talking to as many people as possible and, and, and learning what their needs are. Um, because like there's a lot of, you can get, all I'm saying is like you can, you can spend a lot of time building tools um, and then, and then, you know, not spend any time on the really important part, which is cultivating a business. So I think the first and foremost thing is kind of understanding who your customer is and, and how you can build those relationships, um, and just getting on the phone with them, right. Just, just, just having these conversations one-on-one. I mean, as I start building kind of these, these tool set for developers, my, you know, I try to spend more of my time talking than I do building, uh, which I know is kind of an uncomfortable thing. But it is a, a very necessary thing if you want to make sure you're you're pointed in the correct direction. But to answer your question, I mean, I think what's so amazing it, um, from the past ten years is there's just been a, an amazing amount of software that is now freemium and accessible. And you know, like I personally, my favorite tools are um, you know Airtable. I think it's an amazing way to build a database of clients. We've certainly done it here. Uh, when you have level up on your CRM, uh, you could probably look into HubSpot. Uh, HubSpot is a tool that allows you to basically, you know, how do you document every customer transaction that you've ever had? And, you know, when do they visit your site? How can you nudge them with emails? And, you know, where are they on the, you know, acquisition flow? So that's another great tool I've used. Um, you know, Webflow uh, is another amazing tool if you want to kind of quickly get a website up. Uh, if you want even something quicker, Type Dream is another great website builder that you can get something done, you know, in the afternoon um, to sell something. Um, or even Super.so, uh, which is another tool that allows you to just build a website in the afternoon. And sometimes it's just about getting an idea out there, putting it on the web, and, and just getting a couple emails and seeing if what you're talking about and what you're pitching is resonating with people, and then have those conversations um, with those individuals. So. Um, yeah, I, maybe Evan, me and you can, can sit down and we can put a list together and, and put it in the show notes of other ideas. Uh, I'm just trying to throw some ideas off the top of my head. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I appreciate that because I think I, I, I just heard about some of these for the first time myself. And, um, I think that finding ways to work smarter through this process is important. And I think tools can help you do that. Like we're all overloaded with information all the time. How do we start making sense of that? And so when you're talking about having conversations with people, I think that there's ways to address information management starting right there. Like you and I are having conversation. It's being recorded for to put out to the world. But in the, the cases that you're talking about, it probably wouldn't be. It would just be, let's have this conversation. Tell me what you struggle with. Tell me about your hopes and dreams. Like whatever these things are that you are interviewing potential maybe someday clients about to find out like where the problem set really exists there's amazing tools out there that can then take that recording and automatically not only transcribe it but generate keywords that just because of frequency of use like i use otter uh, to transcribe one of my shows and it then gives me spits out a list of like 20 keywords that came up in an hour-long conversation that's useful right because when i want to go back and find something later that because I want to be present during this conversation, right? I don't need to be constantly taking notes the whole time. I can reference it later. There's tools like this for video. There's tools like this for audio. And it just helps kind of like, okay, what what are the themes that are coming up across conversations? What are the pain points that I can identify out of this list of keywords? It's It's funny little things like that, right? That didn't used to be available and now they are, right? And And those are kind of interesting developments in the world of communication that can help me start to make sense of out of all these conversations that I'm having so that I do over index on actually talking to people right up front, but then making some sense out of that to pick a direction to go in. I think just ideas like that, I think kind of come to just start forming in my brain about like, how can we actually work smarter through this, through this and not just do this so that we can continue to offer a service, but actually turn it into a business 
that you can pull somebody into and they can understand how it works too and why it works that way, right? If, as you're at, if you are building a business, you're adding people to that. How do they get into that system and start to make sense of how it works too, so that it can get better and better and better and not just like reinvent the wheel because somebody new shows up and doesn't know how to do it. Yeah. I think too, at the same time, you know, um, sometimes it's just a matter of like, if someone wants to just want to take notes in a notebook, that's fine too. I think like if I was approaching, like, let's say I want to build an ADU business in North Carolina, uh, like Nashville or no, excuse me, Asheville, right? Like the, the thing I would do first is like, okay, how do I find like most recent, if I, my thesis is I want to see if new home buyers want to build ADUs, all the property records or public records. I go and I either I, I find their email or I send them a letter and be like, Hey, I'm very, int- I'm, I'm looking at thinking about building something in this space. I'd love to have a conversation. And then you could pitch them like how much it would cost to build this thing and how we get financed and things of that nature. And, and again, it's just through like hypothesis, talk to customers, and then you'll have like your answer. And, um, you know, uh, it's, it's a, obviously it's a, it's a different kind of, modality for you know especially for architects but you know just having a lot of conversations and having a hypothesis and then hitting as many customers potential customers as you can with that same hypothesis and getting a yes or no before you build anything uh it'll 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 uh it will alleviate a lot of pain in the future <laughs> yeah that's a that's a just a, a mini topic there maybe we, we can start wrapping up here but i think that th- this idea of informed speculation right rather than just like a speculative project that you develop because this is the kind of thing that you think makes sense and kind of getting out there and actually doing that product market test fit right ahead of time when there is no product just and really kind of informing your speculation like holding off maybe it is a hypothesis that with all of this input gets refined and then it becomes something even more valuable because you have invited those other voices to the table early on to say, no, like, okay, you're right. You're wrong. Let's adjust. Let's, let's refine, let's iterate on this idea before it comes a real thing. And then of course, once it becomes a real thing, you're going to do that again, most likely if this really is a business like that, like we're talking about. Um, it just seems like there's different levels of iteration that could be happening. Um, and I think what's, it's not unlike the architectural design process when, that we learned when we were in school, right? It, it is very much like a iterative, refine as you go, tear the model apart, put it back together, flip it upside down, spin it around, like go through all that process, but with real people, right? With people who don't think like architects, with people who think like consumers of things, um, because those are important perspectives to get when you're going to bring something like this to your community, potentially. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, and I realize we're wrapping up and we could probably do a whole other podcast on how to think about starting something new and where are the first steps. But sometimes it's just a matter of like, all you need is a phone and and a notebook. And I think just having a methodology about how to answer some of those really important first questions about, is there a market? Is there a product here? And then how am I validating that? And how do I find those first customers? Um, and starting really small. Uh, I think that a lot of people get really caught up into like, oh, I need to build this big thing right away. And sometimes it's just like getting getting customer number one is everything. Um, but um, and, then, and then you get your next 10 and then you get your next 100. But just focusing on that customer number one and establishing that and it builds momentum from there. Um, I've learned that the hard way of having too high expectations. I think the best thing you can do is have like really tepid expectations and just be like enthusiastic about just learning more. And if someone's like, I, you know, here's my money, go do this thing for me, then you're onto something. Right. But, uh, just be, just be like methodical and thoughtful and, um, really over index on talking to people. Um, you'll, you'll never build a terrible business if you, talk to customers and you answer their needs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the importance of building that relationship bubble up front is, is key, right? Like actually the human to human part of it is, is huge for sure. And I, I, just to reinforce your point about like not ever thinking you've got it all figured out is super important too. kind of, it's like 
it's kind of like a beta testing, right? It's like, we're going to figure out what works, what doesn't, we're going to iterate. And this is just a continuum from here on of iteration, right? Like software is never done. It's a, it's kind of a good analogy for this kind of a idea behind this business. It's like, we don't have it all figured out. The context is changing. There's new opportunities. How can we bring value to those opportunities with who we are? What's our DNA imprint going to be on this? I think that's a, that's a special place that architects can really operate from um, because of the the training, but the mindset that they bring to design problems and to projects. Yeah, I think that any business at any level, whether it's one person with one customer or the scale of Amazon, right? Uh, you know, whenever you stop asking questions and making sure you're doing the right things and making sure that you're still talking to customers and, and building something of value, then you're, uh, then, then you're on the right track. Uh, as soon as you rest on your laurels and, 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 and make assumptions about what the customer wants and using your gut for everything, uh, that's where you get into trouble. Mm, there's the lesson right there. <laughs> I think uh, there's a lot of pressure on architects to always have the answers, right? And so that that does take kind of a a refreshed perspective to to move into, so that you don't feel that pressure to deliver on always having to have the answers, but being open to asking more questions to further understand. Always is a that's a different perspective to come from, but it is really important. Being open to failure, being open to not knowing, um, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's tough. It's a hard thing to learn because you're taught something else, right? Uh, but, um, you know, that vulnerability, I think, is very important to building anything uh, worthwhile. Yeah, yeah. Well, is there anything we didn't talk about that you want to squeeze in here? No, um, this has been a really great conversation. I really appreciate you having me back on again. Uh, You know, hopefully this is content that, uh, you know, is is new for this channel. And um, yeah, uh, looking forward to the next time we can connect and continue the conversation. Yeah. And just to reiterate, Ian, you want to talk to people who want to start on this journey. So I, I would will absolutely would love. Yeah. So uh, I'll put my calendar link. It's just a, it's just a link to schedule something on my calendar and have a 15 minute conversation. And uh, yeah, would love to learn more about, you know, either you're already on your journey or you're, you would like to, and you're just, and you just don't know where to start. Um, I would love to, uh, if, uh, if you'll have me, I'd love to have that conversation. I appreciate you bringing that opportunity to this audience and I hope people do take you up on it. So uh, I will uh, definitely make sure that that link is in there. Ian, it's been a wonderful conversation. Thanks for doing that with me today. Hey, thanks so much for having me back. Thank you to Avail for their support of this podcast episode. Visit getavail.com to see their holistic approach to content management today. This show is part of the Gabled Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gabledmedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E. Troxel. Talk to you soon.